You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. So yeah, as Simon said, we're starting a new series today, Genesis, What Happens Next? Over the last number of years, we've spoken quite a lot on the first few chapters of Genesis. We've talked about creation, we've talked about the fall, we've talked about Adam and Eve, we've talked about Noah, we've told a lot of these stories, but we've kind of stopped about there really. Not that often have we done much on the rest of Genesis. We've talked about um, how Genesis 1 and 2 aren't literal fact, but they were based at least in part on Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation myth. And we've talked about how that was never meant to be literal fact. It was the Israelites' attempt to make sense of what they believed about God and how they should live. We've talked about the similarities between that and the flood story around Noah, what we see in Genesis 5 to 8, that Noah's ark also isn't historical fact and was also based on another epic. Every culture, like they had a creation story, also had a flood narrative. And there's quite a lot of similarity between what we see in those chapters in Genesis and in Gilgamesh's epic, which is another flood narrative that was around at that time. We've talked about the fall. What does that actually mean? Is the snake really meant to be the devil? Does the fall mean that all humans are now inherently sinful? Is it about original sin or original goodness? We've talked a few times about these kind of things. And if you are newer to the church and you haven't heard all of those things before, then if you go to soundcloud.com slash oasiswaterloo or go to our website or to the podcast stream, then you can listen to all of those talks from previous years. But for the next few weeks, we're going to focus on the rest of Genesis. We're going to talk about Abraham, Lot, Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, Joseph, and maybe a few more as well. But this morning, I'm not going to talk about any of those people. I'm going to talk about origins. There's something important in knowing who you are and where you come from. I don't know how many of you will remember a guy called Sam Meppham. He used to be part of the church a few years ago. Sam was from New Zealand and he worked for us running Hub Athletic, our youth football team, for a bit. And while Sam was here, we did a, a sermon series which we called My Story. It was all about talking about your story and how God had kind of impacted your life. And Sam did one of those talks and he got up here and he stood here and he started by speaking to us in Maori. Fortunately for us, he then went on to translate it into English. And what he said was that he had said, my name is Sam, I'm from this part of New Zealand, my ancestors were from this particular Maori tribe. And he talked a bit about his family, where he was from, and also the connection to nature. He talked about the mountain that surrounded the city where he had grown up, and the river that ran through the city because apparently Maori culture is quite that that's quite important to Maori culture that connection with nature and where you're from Sam said that you would always introduce yourself to other Maoris in this way if he met another Maori person even in London he would start that conversation by introducing himself like that because in Maori tradition your origins are really important Maybe more so, I'd argue, than in British culture. How many of us could do that kind of thing? Tell about our ancestors and where they all came from. I think, actually, I could probably do a bit of that just because all of my ancestors have always lived in Wales. The Joneses have never been big globetrotters, to be honest. Me and my sister are the heretics. She lives in Southampton. Um, 
Origin stories are also a big part in storytelling. In reading up on this kind of stuff this week, I found out that it's a massive part of comic book culture, apparently. All superheroes have an origin story. This uh, is Batman Begins, which is a film which tells the story of how Bruce Wayne became Batman, which apparently is the most famous superhero origin story. So the story goes that Bruce Wayne, as a kid, falls down a dry well and there's loads of bats down there and he's really scared of bats. So not long after that, he goes to the opera with his parents. He lives in Gotham City, which is a really poor, really rough city with loads of crime and loads of poverty. But Bruce Wayne's parents are really rich and they take him to the opera. But in the opera, there are some performers dressed up as bats and Bruce Wayne gets scared and asks his parents if they can leave. So they leave early, they walk down a side street next to the theatre and a mugger takes their money and kills his parents. Bruce Wayne then goes off around the world and learns all these fighting skills and then he comes back as Batman sets himself up in the lair underneath this massive mansion and that is how Batman becomes Batman. Now there is an Irish author that some of you may know called Pete Rollins who has a take on the Batman story. He says that maybe what he could do if he's running Wayne Enterprises, this massive multi-million pound organisation, maybe what he could do is share some of his wealth and maybe there wouldn't be so much crime and poverty. Maybe if he distributed some of that wealth, he wouldn't need to spend it all on a fancy car and try and sort out all the poverty and all the crime on the weekends. But anyway, um, businesses also have origin stories. I used to work before doing this in marketing and a few years ago I went to a seminar that was given by a guy called Tony Anderson who was the first marketing director of EasyJet. Um, he told the story about where EasyJet came from. It was kind of that time where cheap airlines were just starting to take off, Ryanair, all that kind of stuff. And so he left the job of British Airways and went to work for EasyJet. He was one of their very first employees. And he told the story of just the chaos and the fun that was all around EasyJet at that time. He told a story about the planes that they were running. So they bought all these planes and they decided to paint them. And then one day they thought, I know what we'll do. We'll put the phone number on the side of the plane. This was in the olden days. Now you'd have EasyJet.com on the side of these planes. But in those days, people used to book mainly on the phone. So he said, this is what we'll do. We'll paint all of the planes that we have, this phone number on the side, so everywhere they go, everyone will be able to see. He took it to his boss his boss said that's a fantastic idea how much is it going to cost to paint all these planes and he said well I've worked it all out it's going to cost this much we can afford that can't we well just about I mean we're just getting off the ground but you know I reckon we can do that because I reckon it'll probably work so they decided to do it they got all the paint they arranged all the people to come and do that but what they'd forgotten about was when the planes were being painted there were no customers on them they'd forgotten that they couldn't sell tickets on those days and so actually their income for those days where the planes were going to be painted, was zero. And it nearly bankrupted EasyJet. But he said that was the kind of place it was. Nobody really minded that much. British Airways decided that they would try and fight back, and so they launched their own budget airline called Go. And so he said that when they found out that British Airways were going to do that, everyone in EasyJet thought, well, this is going to be a bit of a problem. You know, we're the kind of young upstarts, but, you know, this is British Airways. They could do something about this. What are we going to do? So again, he went to his boss and he said, I've got an idea. What we'll do is we'll buy 10 tickets for Go's first flight, and we'll all turn up 
because there'll be loads of press coverage in bright orange boiler suits with letters on them which spell out, Go EasyJet. <laughs> and that's what they did. So on Go's first flight, all this press coverage has got somebody in an orange boiler suit in the background, and then they all actually got on the flight, and then everyone sits down, and just before you get the bit which says, please put your seatbelt on, the founder of EasyJet walked around giving vouchers to everybody on this Go flight for money off an EasyJet flight in the future. The thing about those stories is that they tell you something about the company, don't they? They tell you something about the values of EasyJet, particularly at that time. It was fun, it was anarchic, it was trying to disrupt the market. That origin story of EasyJet comes through those stories, doesn't it? Charities have origin stories as well. This is a, a group of people um, who lived in Cardiff in the 1940s. Um, there was a guy called Eddie Price, who's one of those, and he fell in work and had a serious accident. He ended up in hospital, and his mates, who used to go and have a meal with him every week, they thought, what can we do? He's going to be stuck in hospital for months. We can try and do something. So they got an old portable radio, and they took it into him, very quickly, the nurse banned the portable radio because it turned out the rest of the hospital didn't want to listen to what Eddie Price wanted to listen to. So they managed to rig up a headset, kind of early headphones, so that he could listen to this radio and nobody else could. He loved this. He also loved Cardiff City. And so they managed somehow to rig up a feed to get the commentary from Cardiff City games not that far away on a Saturday afternoon so that he could listen to that as well. After Eddie came out of hospital, they decided they wanted to do more of this kind of thing. So they found people in the local area that they could help. There was a woman who was a widow and had loads of kids, and she lost her arm in an accident, so could no longer wash clothes by hand. So they all clubbed together and got her a washing machine. They then decided to do something a bit bigger. And at the end of the Second World War, there were a load of Welsh soldiers who were stuck a long way away and couldn't get home. They were all in hospital. Um, and so they weren't going to be able to get back from Burma because their injuries were so severe. So what they thought they would do is they'd put on a fundraiser and they'd build a rest home for injured soldiers who couldn't get back from Burma at the end of the war. At the end of this night, they thought, hey, we're pretty good at this we should get together and do something a bit more formally. And then somebody said, what are we going to be called? And they said, well, there are 10 of us. Let's call ourselves 10 of us. And now 10 of us is one of the biggest cancer charities in the UK. They supported millions of people over the years, those with cancer and the families of those with cancer. And actually some of their research is what funded uh, a pill which is now used in breast cancer treatment all around the world every day. There is one origin story that I won't talk about today. It's a, a story about a teenage boy walking down the side of Crystal Palace Football Club who decided he realised what he was going to do with his life. But it's a pretty good one. If you don't know about that one, maybe speak to somebody at the end because I'm sure there's quite a number of us who could tell you that story. Origin stories are important. And that's what this first section of Genesis is all about. The beginning of Genesis through to the middle of chapter 11 is called prehistory because halfway through chapter 11 is when the narrative shifts to being historical fact. Before that, those first 11 and a half chapters, the point of them isn't that they are telling historical fact. That isn't the point. What those chapters are, they are Israel's origin story. 
This section of Genesis in its final form was probably written while the people of Israel were in exile in Babylon. And when the Israelites were in exile, the question that they always asked of each other was, are we still the people of God? Are we still connected to those Israelites God spoke to? And their answer to this question was to write their story. It was a reminder Even though we are in exile, even though we're not in our own land, this is where we came from. And this is how we live now. Whether we're in our own land or not, whether we're in exile or in our own land, we still hold to these same truths. It was the people of Israel saying, this is who we are. This is where we came from. And this is how we understand the God that we follow. It always makes me think of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel in the New Testament, the bit where Jesus stands up and he says, you have heard it said, do this. But I tell you, do this instead. I always think the prehistory bit of Genesis is a bit like that. You have heard it said that the world was created out of violence by an angry God. But I tell you, the world was created by a God of love. A God who looked at his creation and said it was good. And this God still looks at us and says it is good. It is very good. Oh, and by the way, that same God still looks at you this morning. Still looks at all of us today and says it is very good. These stories are not only important because they tell people where they came from but also because they told the Israelite people how they were to live day to day. This was about a community telling their story, their origin story, where they came from. This is Amanda Mbuvi. She's a professor of religion and she's a brilliant theologian. And she talks about how this part of Genesis was written to show how a community was formed. She says, we've made it about personal sin, Adam and Eve eating the apple. They were sinful, so does that mean that I'm sinful? And if so, what do I have to do about it? Me, me, I. But that is not at all why these stories were written. In fact, it's heresy in the Jewish tradition to talk about me and not we. The Jewish tradition is always about the community, always about the collective and never more so than in these first few chapters in Genesis. They were always about forming the identity of a community. And Bovi says this is about the way that groups come to understand themselves as having a particular character and identity. The Israelites were told that their God was a loving God, and so they should live lives of love. That was their identity. It was built in who they were. If we were describing it today, we might use the word institutional. It was in their DNA. And I've thought about this quite a lot this week. And I've thought about it in regards to some of the awful, awful stories that have been in the media this week. Now, I want to flag this now for anyone who might find this next section difficult and might want to take a break, there's a quiet space from the side if you want to. But I'm going to talk about the trial of the man who killed Sarah Everard and some of the responses from those in the police to this. It's a big topic, I'm aware of that, but I do feel that if churches don't talk about these big stories, then what is the point in us coming together on a Sunday at all? 
Because you see, what happened with the Israelites is that they lost a sense of who they were collectively. That community identity that was based on the idea that they followed God, that they were different from the other nations because their God was different, they lost that. And they ended up in exile. And then they ended up following the other nations by taking a king, just like all the other countries did. And eventually, in one of the books of Kings, we read a story about King Solomon building a temple using slave labor. The oppressed had become the oppressors. They were no longer living by their origin story. And I have thought about that a lot this week, particularly when I've been reading about Sarah Everard. If there is anyone who is unaware of this story, it is a shocking one, but Sarah Everard was walking home from a friend's house in Clapham last March when a police officer approached her, told her she was under arrest for breaking COVID regulations, handcuffed her, put her in the back of a car and took her away and killed her. I took this from the Police Foundation website earlier this week. The purpose of the police service is to uphold the law fairly and firmly, to prevent crime, to pursue and bring justice to those who break the law, to keep the Queen's peace, to protect, help and reassure the community, and to be seen to do this with integrity, common sense and sound judgment. So what's happened? Now, I know that we will all have different opinions about this. Some of us will argue that it was one man, one police officer, and you can't tar the whole police force with the same brush because of the actions of one man. Others will point to the policing of the miners' strike, to the South Yorkshire police covering up after Hillsborough, to the killing of Stephen Lawrence and the McPherson report which followed that, which argued that there was institutional racism in the police force, or just to the WhatsApp messages that Sarah Everard's killer was sharing with other serving police officers. I think even the strongest supporter of the police force would agree that some things need to change. This week, in response to being asked about Sarah Everard, the North Yorkshire Police Commissioner, Philip Allett, said that women needed to be more streetwise. The Met Police Commissioner, Cressida Dick, said women should try to flag down a bus if they didn't trust a police officer. Now, I know we will have different opinions on this, and that genuinely is fine. We are not a church where we say you have to listen to, agree with, and believe anything that's everything that's said at the front We can have a conversation about this. But for me, those comments are about putting the responsibility onto women, when surely the answer isn't that women need to be more streetwise. It's that if the institution needs to change so that everyone is trustworthy, that's what we should be talking about. I know this is a really difficult subject to grapple with, but I don't feel like we can sit here in the UK and call out the racism in the US police force over things like the murder of George Floyd without tackling some of the problems on our doorstep. But we should also look closer to home. Matthew chapter 7 verse 3 says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Because the church, and I mean the church as a whole, the institutional church, we have our own institutional problems, don't we? We all know this. 
as much as it would sadden all of us to say it, we all know that the church has its own issues with misogyny and with homophobia and with racism. And actually, the prehistory in Genesis is used to justify all of those things. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That verse, thanks to some terrible interpretation, that verse has been used to justify the exclusion of people who identify as LGBT+. Genesis 3 verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. That's been used to justify some awful misogyny. The woman is the problem. She sinned and then she conned Adam into doing it. But without him, without her, he'd have been fine. She's the weaker one because she was the one who gave into temptation in the first place. Or Genesis chapter 9, the story of how Ham doesn't cover Noah's nakedness. And as a result, Noah curses Ham's son, Canaan. That then became the theological justification for racism. Ham theology, especially in apartheid South Africa. Ham's descendants, it said, were cursed, and they moved to Africa, which is where all of this comes from. So if we're going to call out institutions for moving away from their core vision what they're meant to be doing. And we really need to start closer to home, don't we? And we're the same. If there are issues within our own community, we need to be able to call that out as well. Organisations, businesses, communities, churches, they all act out of the story that they follow and the story that they believe about themselves. And we're the same as individuals. We all act out of the story that we follow and the story that we believe about ourselves. So where do we go from here? Well, as I end, I'm going to bring it back to Genesis. The last story that's told in the prehistory is the one that Ben read to us this morning about the Tower of Babel. I never used to enjoy the Babel story. It never really made much sense to me. When I was in my 20s, I worked for an art centre. Uh, and in, in that art centre, before they opened, first thing in the morning, the kitchen staff would make me cheese on toast. And I'd sit in the little cafe bit that we had with the kitchen staff and with the caretakers and I'd eat my cheese on toast. And for some reason, they would always ask me questions about theology or about the Bible. I'd have loads of interesting conversations with them. And one day, somebody said, hey, how is it that everyone speaks different languages? Where did all that come from? If you believe in this God that created Adam and Eve and everyone kind of came from that, how do people speak different languages? And I told them the story about the Tower of Babel, and they all just looked at me as if I had about three heads. They looked at me as if I was mad. But a few years later, I read it in a different light. There's a bit of detail that I had missed until I read a book which pointed this out. Verse 3 in chapter 11 said this, They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. You might miss this. But what they had done is they'd made smooth, flat bricks, which were all the same size. And this meant they could now build much higher than they previously had done when they were using stone, which wasn't a uniform shape. And this new technology, this opportunity to build bigger and higher than ever before was in the hands of a man called Nimrod who was the person in charge of Babylon at that time 
and he was in charge of building the tower. In chapter 10, it says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter. And what we know about Nimrod was that he was trying to build an empire. Babel means gate of God, and that's what they were trying to build, a gateway to God. They were trying to prove that they had the power. So you start chapter 11 with the whole world had one language and a common speech. But what we have here is a power-hungry leader who's trying to disrupt this harmony. People scattering and moving means that some people are being left behind. Some people are getting more land, more power, more money and leaving behind a lot of others. The Tower of Babel is a story about the strong starting to dominate the weak. And we have to remember that this is still prehistory. It isn't historical fact. It's a story which is written to tell the Israelites that our God, the God that we follow, our God doesn't want that. He doesn't want some to be rich and others to be poor. He doesn't want some to be strong and others to be weak. He doesn't want an unequal society. And this is how it fits with those stories that I told earlier about what's happening today. Because I think the Tower of Babel story is a story about subversively changing the institutional narrative when the institutional narrative isn't working for justice. It's a story about changing institutions when institutions aren't working for justice. And I think today we're called to exactly the same thing. We are called to find ways to change institutional narratives when institutions aren't working for justice. And I wonder if this is part of the story that we should be telling. If we were writing stories which were meant to form the identity of our community, as those Israelites did, we were writing stories that were meant to form the identity of Oasis Church Waterloo today, I wonder if these are the type of stories that we should tell. Stories about how we stood up for and fought for justice for people of colour, not just in Black History Month, but every month. Stories about how we fought to ensure that every woman felt safe walking home on her own. Stories which talk about the ways in which we fought to change institutions when institutions weren't working for justice. Because that, I think, is a story that's worth telling.